Good to see you all. My name's David. Uh, if you haven't met, looking forward to meeting you. And um, this is quite a challenging uh, passage to preach on because it's two or three chapters involved. Uh, so let's ask for God's help as we, um, we come to this really valuable part of his word. Lord, we thank you that you, um, you give us narrative, you give us stories, you provide examples for us people who have gone ahead of us, who inspire us. We pray we might be inspired by the Apostle Paul, who was filled with your spirit and and did things that pleased you, that we might do the same with our lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I played paintball with a group of teenagers. It shouldn't be called paintball anymore because they just use round rubber balls that that don't burst, so they hurt even more. And it made me realise a fresh that I just don't like getting hurt anymore. Um, So I wore thermals under my jeans, even though it was hot, uh, while a teenager next to me, a 17-year-old, was just wearing his shorts and and volley shoes with no socks on, so his ankles were exposed. Um, At some points, I just wanted to hide back in our home base and just hope no one comes and finds me hiding in a corner. I hear some people have cold showers. I know some people even take... Uh, ice baths. Uh, I just don't like them. Uh, Suffering is something that seems natural to avoid where we can, and yet there are some causes that would lead us to rise up to it and face it, to choose danger and make sacrifices. And the good fight of the kingdom is, of course, uh, the greatest cause we can take. Uh, The kingdom work that's going on in the book of Acts And Paul helps us to brace ourselves for the cold, for the costs, uh, for the bullets and the casualties. Uh, Taking God's gospel to the world can hurt us. And so our Bible reading answers the question, how did God's love cost Paul as the one delivering it? It's then a small step for us to think about how we might be more resilient and brave in our service of Christ. So in the book of Acts, we see that the parable of the, um, the vineyard and the vineyard owners um, continues on. So you might remember that, uh, that parable where Jesus speaks of the wicked tenants who are looking after the vineyard and are meant to be paying their rent, but they're not. And so the owner sends messengers to, to get what he is due. And finally, he sends his son, and even the son is killed. Well, we see that that story remains relevant even beyond the son being killed. So God has sent Peter. He gets persecuted. He's sent Stephen. Stephen's killed with stones. He's sent James, and he's killed with a sword. And now we see it's Paul's turn to go to Jerusalem as God kindly sends another one of his willing servants. It's Paul's turn. And through Paul's spirit-inspired readiness, God so kindly gives Israel this one more warning one more chance, one last messenger before their destruction in about 12 years' time, if this is AD 57, 58. And so we see here Paul, just to simplify these three chapters, Paul addresses two hostile audiences that make the points in our handout, if you have that in front of you. So the first half is roughly about Paul going to the Jewish people, to Jerusalem, to a city he knows will hurt him, and the second half to the Jerusalem council the leaders who are also ready to kill him. So firstly, his, his more public speech to the representatives of the whole city. 
before Paul witnesses to this spiritually dark city of Jerusalem, his well-informed and his well-meaning friends tell him, don't do it. You're going to suffer there, and they try to prevent their friend from enduring that. There are going to be many parallels in this passage with the passages we see in the Gospels of Jesus heading towards the cross. Here's Paul's heading towards Jerusalem as well. For example, Jesus too is warned, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul doesn't say to his friends, get behind me, Satan, as Jesus does to Peter, but let's look at what he does say and what does happen in chapter 21 from verse 10. After we had been there in Caesarea a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, a region around Jerusalem. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt, that's you, Paul, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. That turns out to be true, the prophet Agabus makes his warning hard to miss by doing this physical reenactment of what's ahead for Paul. Now we know from last week, in chapter 20, Paul has already been warned by the, the Spirit who lets Paul know what he's in for before asking him to do it. And now the Spirit also lets the church know what's ahead of Paul, their apostle, so that they can, I think, share in the danger and share in Paul's resolve as well and see his example as we do today. So from verse 12, When we, Luke and Paul's other friends, heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For what? For the name of the Lord Jesus. For the name of the Lord Jesus. As the song puts it, Your glorious cause, O God, engages our hearts. And Paul, too, wants Jesus' name rightly recognized by his Jewish nation, his salvation received, his rule recognized. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, perhaps those who are older than me might have noticed more than me, but our culture seems to have become super safety conscious. Though we live in one of the safest civilizations in the world, I take it, we're repeatedly told to be safe, safety first. And so even in a more safe place in Australia, a little country town called Walker, the kids there, I remember when our kids were in primary school, they were told don't play the game Bull Rush. The kids just loved playing. And it's, I think kids forever have played this game Bull Rush where some kids run from one side to the other and others have to tip them on the way. It's not safe, it's banned. And so the kids called the game by some of its other names. So when the teacher said, what are you playing? They'd say, well, we're playing Red Rover Crossover or we're playing British Bulldog, or that was still no good. And so one bright kid in the playground had the idea to rename the game for the teachers of his time. And so when the teacher asked, what game are you playing? He answered, we're playing safety tip. (laughs) And the thing is, it worked. Uh, Who can can ban safety tip? (laughs) And so Paul, we saw last week, he isn't afraid of tears, But he asks them not to shed them for his own sake. He's ready for this danger. And he soldiers on in verse 14. When he wouldn't be dissuaded, we gave up and said, as Jesus had said something very similar earlier about his own sacrifice, the Lord's will be done, not my will, but yours be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. So here we go, back to Jerusalem again. 
And we might say, watching Paul, good on you, Paul. What a terrible walk. Um, But how much you resemble your saviour as you head there. Not to be the lamb of God that was slain, but to speak of this lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And so for the sake of thousands of Jews, Christian Jews, who had become Christians, perhaps from the time of Pentecost on, thousands at a time, the rumour has been going around that Paul is anti-Jewish. When we're seeing he's anything but that. Paul, in this chapter, will bend over backwards to show he isn't anti-Jewish. And so he engages in a Jewish purification rite. I'm just going to skim over some things in the story to get through the details. He didn't have to do it, but he was free to do it. And so the the logic of it was in verse 24 there, chapter 21. Everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you. Now, if anyone is not anti-Jewish, it's Paul. Look at what he's doing for his Jewish nation. Paul may have helped thousands of Jews by that simple act of going through the purification rite to show them I'm not anti-Jewish, I'm not anti-Temple, I'm not anti-Moses. And so that side of his ministry in Jerusalem alone could have had an effect that we don't read about. We don't get the results of his mission here. But for those set against Paul, no facts would affect them, not even his purification rite. So verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. But we see, verse 29, that they merely assumed that Paul had brought one of his Gentile friends into the temple because they'd seen this friend in the city with Paul. So we see, like Jesus, Paul too is being accused of anti-temple behaviour. In fact, it seems Luke is deliberately uh, mirroring Jesus' examples with Paul's in the way he describes things. Paul's a little suffering servant ahead of who's following the great suffering servant. Uh, John Stott points out six similarities between Paul and Jesus here. Firstly, they were both rejected by their own people, arrested without cause and imprisoned. Secondly, they were unjustly accused and willfully misrepresented by false witnesses. Three, they were slapped in the face in court. Four, they were hapless victims of secret Jewish plots. Five, they were hearing the terrifying noise of a frenzied mob screaming literally away with him in Luke's Gospel and in Acts. And six, they were subjected to a series of five trials. So we'll see two of Paul's trials today in front of the Jews and there were three more trials in front of the Romans next week. So let's have a look at the two trials Paul endures this week. And it looks like a, a real spiritual battle going on, like we've seen in the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, where there's this animosity and anger towards the light and towards Jesus. Verse 30, we see the whole city is emphasised. This is a big audience God is bringing to Paul. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. I think symbolising the closeness to the gospel. I take it that's why that's recorded. It's a bit hard to know why. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
in God's kindness to Paul, I guess, there's a, happens to be a, a Roman guard right on the edge of the temple. So it may not have been many minutes. We don't know how many minutes these men, angry men, had in their attempt to beat Paul to death. But it would have been ugly, and it seems a miracle that he survived it. And he hasn't even preached yet, according to the, the account so far. Um, sometimes you see behaviour of the church is um, made to look bad even by the civil authorities. And the separation of church and state can be a good thing for Christians and, and for the world. But here we see a separation of temple and state working in Paul's favour. He should have found refuge in God's temple, or at least his life shouldn't have been in danger. But instead, he finds refuge in the arms of Roman soldiers, of all people. That happens repeatedly in these couple of chapters. And we pick up from verse 34. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. So Paul's back now in the barracks, rescued by the soldiers. And while the soldiers might feel they've finished with that crowd out there, Paul knows he hasn't finished with the crowd out there, and so he pleads, can he go back out? Imagine going back to a a mob like that wanting to kill you. Why would Paul do that? And I think the simple answer is that he loved them. Though beaten to a pulp, Paul hasn't yet had the chance to share that clear gospel message with these Jews, a message they really must hear. And so Paul pleads with the commander, verse 39, please, let me speak to the people. Paul's going to give a really short, compelling testimony. This is repeated from Acts chapter 9 and a couple more times in the book of Acts. Um, It's going to have a few purposes. Uh, But Paul himself is really well suited to this purpose. If you think, why did God choose the person of Paul to do his work? Paul is better suited to this occasion, we might say, even than Jesus himself. Why? Paul was much more like them. Uh, He used to be one of them, and so he knows exactly what they're thinking, why they're thinking it, and how he might persuade them of the error of their ways. So he says, chapter 22, verse 3, I was well educated and devoted to our law. Verse 4, I was even more hostile towards Christians and this message about Jesus than you are. You're in a rage today, but I led a, a rage program. And verse 5, the high priests and leaders know all of this to be true. They know my past. And so far, they're still listening. And so he gets to share his incredible encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, not only to explain his own change, but also to give him an excuse, I take it, to share that Jesus is raised from the dead. He lives. Paul borrows Ananias as a faithful, trustworthy source, Uh, Chapter 22, verse 12, Ananias was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Paul's saying, it's not only me, Ananias saw it. And through Ananias' words, he says that Paul saw the righteous one that day. And the righteous one from that point on would be called upon, uh, by Paul, as Paul calls on God's name, he'd call on Jesus' name. So all's going well for Paul. So again, a lot of today is going to be going through this story. But a lot is going well for Paul until he puts the Gentiles on an equal footing with the Jews. 
And that really upsets them. They go back into the rage. Um, Paul's saying now that the Gentiles have equal access and God wants to save them just as he saves us. And so in verse 22 we read, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. They're no longer the the golden-haired boy. They're no longer a sense of favourite. The playing field is level. And so they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. For this civil uproar, Paul is brought back to the barracks again for interrogation and torture. But at least Paul knows he's done it. He's got through. He's given all those Jews another chance to hear. So round one is over. Paul gets through the crowds, through the mob. And we might call it a really painful triumph for Paul. I don't know if you've noticed, but often our father's love, God's love, is very often born by his trusting children. We have been made rich in Christ, grow, and then he leads us to resemble Christ in our sufferings as we take up his kingdom cause. We share the cost of the gospel's delivery. I don't know if you've noticed that. The gospel's free to those who hear it, but it costs often a lot to those who share it. It seems like it's an honour that God brings us into as part of his family, that he would treat us like his son in costly offering of this most vital kingdom message. And so we're all here today uh, beneficiaries of servants who have gone before us. I think of Sunday school teachers. I had no idea what they went through to teach me Sunday school. I remember one thing they said to me that got my... Anyway, they, they said, I'll tell your mum about what you're doing at the moment. That, that scared me at the time for some reason. I don't know why I mentioned that. I think I, I mentioned it because I remember what I put one of my Sunday school teachers through that uh, got her to that point. She was a lovely woman otherwise. But, uh... but they go through a lot. You know, there's a, there's a routine. There's keep, keep showing up. Um, home group leaders friends who've listened to us when we needed someone to listen to us, our parents, our elders, pastors. And it makes me wonder how might we be a blessing to other people as others have been to us. And perhaps we can take more consciously the sacrifices we are making as well and, and offer those to God rather than just enduring it mindlessly. God, this is, this is the way I'm serving you. This is the sacrifice I'm making for you. Even with his body swollen and covered in bruises, I take it. There's no description of Paul's body at this time. I take it he's still going to sleep better at night overall because he's given his fellow countrymen, he's thrown them a line. He said he had unceasing anguish in his heart in the book of Romans for his fellow countrymen. Now he's given them a chance, a final chance to hear. And so he would say his suffering has been worth it. This Paul, they might say, is either a liar or a lunatic or he really did meet the risen Lord. Who knows the effect of Paul's witness in those days? What about round two? Round two is when Paul then takes this gospel to a group of leaders ready to kill him. You'd think Paul would have kept his swollen mouth shut. But the Lord gives Paul another golden opportunity, this time to speak to the leaders the ruling council that can affect many other Jews. Chapter 23, verse 1. It's a much shorter address, this one. He doesn't get to say much at all. 
He begins by stating his sincerity, though. My brothers, I fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Whatever you make of me, know that I'm not a, I'm not a troublemaker. Uh, I'm not doing this in some way because I disbelieve in God. I'm doing it as a pious man who believes this is the right way to go. Fulfilled my duty in all good conscience to this day. He gets struck in the face for this, as Jesus does in his trial. But it makes Paul realise, I think, that there's no way he's going to get a fair hearing. And so, as God promised to give his words, his servants the words in situations just like these, Paul has brilliant, I think, shrewd, wise words. With just a few words that we'll see in a moment, Paul achieves three benefits. He manages to get a portion of the hostile crowd suddenly siding with him, being open to his view, Secondly, he creates a reaction to show how unreasonable the crowd are so that the Roman governor sees a fair trial isn't going to happen in this court. And thirdly, he manages to get the good news out there in a simple way, that the Jesus they crucified has risen again. So let's have a look at how Paul does that very simply. Verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them are Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from the Pharisees. So he's siding himself with one big group in the room. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. There's the gospel right there. And it's also a point that's going to separate the two groups in the room. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. Verse 9, we find nothing wrong with this man. So, you know, Paul's okay. He believes in the resurrection. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? What if indeed? Nevertheless, the darkness sweeps back and seeks to extinguish the light. And for the third time in as many chapters, Paul is saved by the Roman commander in verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring them into the barracks. So as Paul gets back into the saddle again, it's back into the barracks again. But this time, the supposedly civilized leaders are those trying to kill him. But I think this is Paul's it-is-finished moment. He did it. He nearly got killed a couple of times for it, but he did it. Jerusalem, the whole city is is warned, round one, and now her leaders are warned directly as well. God alone knows how many people he saved through Paul's painful visit. But I wonder if Paul felt a little bit like Billy Graham might have felt satisfied after preaching to his home city and giving his own people a chance to hear the gospel he knows they need. We might feel a similar relief when we've got a dying relative and we just have a chance to share Jesus with them one more time. Uh, The inquiring friend, and, and we take that step of boldness to give them a chance to hear about Jesus. Well, somehow, miraculously, Paul is wounded and sore, but he's still alive. And just wrapping all of this up, I think chapter 23, verse 11, brings some strands together that I think bring things together really beautifully. Chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord himself visits wounded Paul. I'd never really noticed the end of this section before, 
or appreciated it, but imagine how special that must have been for Paul. The following night, verse 11, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There's more work to do. Paul wants to go to the ends of the earth. He wants to take it to the the Gentiles. Next week we'll see him start to do that. But isn't it a beautiful image? Jesus didn't just say something to Paul. Jesus stood near Paul. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Did he come back bodily? Was his presence just known to Paul? The ESV puts it that Jesus stood by him. Paul talks about this in in, uh, his letters in 2 Timothy, that the Lord alone stood with him. I've watched the news and I notice the Russian soldiers are often left in the fields where they fell. No one cares about them. No Putin, certainly, to come and check on them. But here the king pays a personal visit to a wounded soldier. I come and I stand with you, Paul. I stand with you. How satisfying that would be for Paul, having just gone through that. Paul's motivation is standing right next to him. His grace standing right next to him. The name for which he was willing to die is now physically with him. How satisfying that must have been. And isn't it good for us to know the Lord Jesus understands that we can hurt in his service? We might imagine the Lord Jesus standing beside some of our churches, returned missionaries. Uh, those who've been strained across cultures and tested and bruised from service. To know that the Lord Jesus says, I acknowledge your service. I know the sacrifices you've made. I'm aware of the dislocation and the pain involved. I stand with you. We could imagine the Lord Jesus standing beside the parent, battling to promote Christ in a complex household and busy schedule. I stand with you. Press on, faithful woman, wife, mother, daughter. Press on, faithful man, husband, father, son, trying to juggle lots of responsibilities in life, trying to be faithful, trying to be a disciple. Press on, teenagers in schools, when you stand out from the world. I get it. And I stand with you. For God so loved the world that he sent Acts might have us adapt this verse a little. For God so loved the world that he sent us, his children, after his own son, that people may not perish but have eternal life. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we thank you that it is by your sheer grace that we are saved and we recognise today that it's come through sheer sacrifice and grit and regularity and faithfulness that we've heard the gospel many times over many years from your servants. Lord, as we've been considering our vocation last week, we want to make our vocation one that is for a worthy cause. Lead us to think of ways we might best serve you with our lives. Lord, if there's a big thing, a Jerusalem on our horizons, that we'd be willing to face it and, and go. 
We pray that you might raise up missionaries from our, our church, those who would take your gospel to places that may be difficult or hostile. We pray to you to help us in the little things, uh, to take steps of boldness, perhaps a, a cold relationship where we pick up the phone and say hello, or a marriage where we say a sincere sorry. Uh, we want to be your disciples, and we want to be willing to take the costs that come with that. And so we pray for your great strength and help uh, that we be disciples of the Lord Jesus. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.